podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barrett Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. The India-Australia Women's T20 International. There's so many things we have to say before, like, to explain a game these days, I just realized. I could have said bilateral as well, just because it feels like there should be a World Cup every five minutes. Um, <laughs> uh, that, was, that was played the other day. I, I wouldn't say I was ignoring it because I knew there'd been a ticket story early on, classic Indian style, where you can't get the tickets at the ground. You have yep. to go to a random place in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and when you get to that random place, they then tell you that's not the random place that you need to go to. Uh, the f- f- my favorite one, I don't know, if, I can't remember if you were there or not, but for the first week of the World Cup in 20, oh, well, which one? Yeah, 2016. 2016, yeah when we were in Nagpur and to get the tickets, you had to go to the old Nagpur stadium oh, yeah, yeah, to course. get the tickets. Oh, that's classic. And so the World Nagpur. Cup, yeah. So the World Cup started and of course, everyone suddenly went, oh, we should go to the World Cup. It's in Nagpur. And then of course, everyone tries to go, gets to the ground. And as you know, the ground is not particularly close to the city. <laughs> so then they had to go back. Anyway, I still remember that. Like there was like 12 people in the ground for the start of the first game and like 3000 people turned up halfway through the innings. Um, so I was, I was partly uh, paying attention to it, but not that much. Uh, and then Australia made 187 for one. Um, and I was, you know, I was following India's chase on and off uh, uh, all the way through until it got to the end. And they needed 14 runs off the last over from Megan Shute. Uh, and I was thinking, well, that she goes at about a run a ball of T20 cricket. So chances are she's going to get Australia home. Um, and then Devika Veda, I think, is that her name? Devika yep. Veda? Did I get yeah. Yep. Uh, v- Vadya, is it? Vadya. But Vadya. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've never, I don't, I mean, I know she, her name's come up before, but I hadn't really paid that much attention. But she got boundary off the last ball, uh, which got them into a super over uh, India. Um, they made 20 off that super over. Australia made 16. So that's basically what happened in the game. It was very yeah. exciting. I think the more important thing is that uh, the numbers I saw online was that was more than 10 million people watching on Hot Star alone. Yep. Now, the men's team are in the middle of losing a series or playing a series against Bangladesh. And, you know, they've got the test matches coming up um, shortly, but losing games. It's not, I wouldn't have said that the women's um, series was completely you know, hyped or anything. No. It did have, was it, this game was the one where they gave away a bunch of the tickets? Was that the? I think it was the previous one, wasn't it? Like this was one it the was previous more... one? I can't even remember. Yeah. But I know one of the games they gave mm. away a lot of tickets, but I, clearly it was still hard to find those tickets by having to go off to a, some college campus somewhere. But th- this is what we've seen a couple of times with, with women's cricket games is that they, people don't always, Unless you're a hardcore women's cricket fan, you don't always set them to watch them in a way that you might for some yeah, of the men's yeah, yeah. games. But as they get big, people just come on. Like, they just uh, turn up. And that's really what that game looked like to me. I don't know how many viewers I had all together, um, but it was absolutely rolling. And for this to happen in a bilateral women's game, I mean, the only other game I could think of is, like, you know, that first 100, 100 game where it was a crammed oval. Um, and because it was the first 100, obviously, you yeah, know, everyone was... There aren't that many times outside of a World Cup you really feel that momentum. But this just felt like a very, very important game in the 
at least recent history, but maybe all-time history of women's cricket? Oh, yeah, very much so. And I don't even want to get into the whole back-in-my-day mindset. But I do remember the first time I covered women's cricket or wrote about women's cricket was way back in 2009 uh, before, you know, Twitter was a thing. Or I was definitely not on Twitter back then. Uh, and, and it was um, it was not a match. It was a camp that they were having in Mumbai, like far away. And this is when, you know, it, it says a lot that the women's camp was held like no, not at the Wankade, not at the CCI. Uh, the D.Y. Patil was just coming into his own. I don't think it had become... Oh, no, it had I already threatened to host an international match, which got washed off. So D.Y. Patil was around, but not not in any of those centers, but far away in the western suburbs. Uh, uh, I think it was somewhere in Borivli, which is really far away, Jared, basically. Uh, and uh, it's like this. Imagine if... Um, the Australian women's team uh, are off to a World Cup. So the Indian women were off to a, a World Cup. This is Harman Preet Kaur's uh, f- real entry into world cricket, uh, 2009. Uh, so uh, imagine uh, the Australian women team is preparing for a World Cup in Sydney and they are not given access to the SCG or anywhere, but they are somewhere, not even the Blacktown Oval. They are in, somewhere in Campbelltown, basically. That's where the Indian women were. Um and uh, I, I was still what within a year into journalism, and my boss said you should go and do like a proper full page story on uh, on the women's team. So I go there, and I expected some media presence. There was nobody there, so uh, it was just I just walked in there, and a lot of them like were thanking me for coming. They were like, "Oh, finally, like now people will know that we are going for a World Cup." Uh, uh, the coach I remember was uh, uh, Sudha Shah at that point, who was coach, has been coach and selector for a while. Uh, so she, you won't believe this, she actually stood and uh, look. This is when even women's cricket on the internet wasn't a big deal. Like you wouldn't, you couldn't mm. find profiles and pictures of everyone. She literally, st- I had a photographer with me. We stood like you know the fifteen members of the squad. Like she, st- uh, we stood, took pictures, uh, and she would tell me about each person. I mean, of course, there were some well-known names there, but the the younger lot, including Harman Preet Kaur, she was like, "Oh, this is what she does. This is what she does. You should speak to this one. She has a great story. That one has a great story." And that's what women's cricket was like in two thousand nine, right? And then I remember covering the two thousand thirteen World Cup, which was in India. I did a lot of the Mumbai games, um, and initially they were at CCI. There weren't too many people. Uh, to the extent I remember one day walking across with Abhishek Purohit, who you worked with in uh, Crick Info, uh, and we covered that tournament uh, uh, very diligently. We did so many interviews. Uh, but I remember walking across the ground to speak to some of the fans. And this was an India game as well. Um, and some of them were there because uh, it was lunchtime and they just thought, you know, why not just have something, watch some cricket while we're eating food. Not not many of them were sure of who was playing. Uh, and I remember Trish Kamini made 100 in that game, the one that I'm talking about. And there was actually a guy from Japan, which I will never forget, which has not, no relevance to what we're talking about. But there's this guy from Japan who was trying to learn the sport of cricket. He had like some app on his iPad. Um, and he was trying to learn about cricket by uh, so I tried having a conversation with him. He wasn't he wasn't very happy to be disturbed by some random fellow <laughs> while he's trying to learn a sport. Well, I don't I don't know where he is. Hopefully, he's become a massive cricket fan. Maybe he's the and captain. He's now of, the coach of Japan. <laughs> coach of Japan. He very well could be, and that's how his story began. So I, I remember as that tournament developed, though. 
there was more and more interest in Australia and West Indies played a very uh, tightly contested final though Australia ran away winners eventually. It was at least Perry's broken leg game. It was very much so. Holly Furling was the big star I remember in that mm -hmm. final. Uh, but because they were just there in the same city playing on the same ground over and over again uh, I think they used some other grounds as well. They played some games at the BKC. Uh, and because it was a World Cup, I think by the end, even the final had a decent crowd, without, despite India not playing. So I think that's what that's when I realized that if it just needs that, it has to become a routine, right? Like people watching women's cricket or whatever it is. If it's a new format, a new sport, like you spoke about the 100, uh, it, it, you just need to get people into the routine of just getting there and coming. And then they start up and then leave it to them to start appreciating what they're seeing. That's the thing. I, I'm trying to remember, someone was talking about a women's sport this week, and I can't remember which women's sport it was, but someone in America, and they were trying to say, oh, well, the reason that women's sport hasn't been funded correctly is because people don't watch it, right? Mm. And what they don't understand is that women's sport was purposely pushed to the side over exactly. and over again. So in cricket, for instance, we had a women's professional league in the 1800s in the UK and it was terrible cricket, yeah. right? Like it, literally they recruited women not based on their cricket. They just had to be essentially look like models from what yeah. I could tell from, from the end. But people still went and watched it, right? And as it was pushed out to those places, you think about like when India won that 2014 test against England, that was in Wormsley. Yes. Now, I've never visited uh, Wormsley <laughs> to watch a cricket game, but I've actually played there a couple of times. Right. Wormsley is hard enough to get to if you're trying to play in that ground. I don't know how as a spectator you get out there. For those who don't know, it is literally Jean-Paul Getty's family home. Oh, right, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> right? It's yeah. not even, like, talk about this, like, of all the hundreds of grounds in England that you could play at, they were like, let's just pick that posh guy's. So when you are playing games in places like that with bad public transport, where people don't generally go to watch yeah. cricket, all those sorts of, you know, the, the, you know, I don't know what the facilities were like for that particular test match. I know the England women played there quite a bit, but uh, it's not a professional cricket ground. It literally, it has a bunch of tents around. When I played there, they gave you a PIMS as you went out to bat. Oh, um, of course uh, it did. Hopefully Matali Raj didn't get off with that, but, you know, you never know. But the point is that you do actually need to build it back up. And when people go, oh, people don't watch women's cricket, they don't understand that that was on purpose. Like men yeah, just yeah. pushed it to the side as much as possible. It's interesting how quickly that has changed. And and, and this being a, I know it was a good game. Don't get me wrong. Good yeah. games help, but it's not the only good game we've ever had in women's cricket. Oh, no, of right? course. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, how many great games of women's cricket would never even broadcasted the first place, yeah, let alone, exactly. you know, being in good ground. I just think it's a really important moment again in, in, in women's cricket development to have what was a game that caught fire that realistically, and, and when I say it caught fire, uh, there was a uh, Chris Addison, uh, the, um, English, um, comedian who was in the thick of it and all those things. He was tweeting about it, and it's not an England women's game. It's not a yeah. World Cup game. The fact that people were actually following it and getting excited by it, and, and some people were getting excited by the crowds, some people were getting excited by the viewing figures, but a lot of people were just like, oh, it's a tie. Oh, it's yeah, super exactly. over, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I just think that you know, you know, it really does show that um, at a certain point, you just have, it ha have to have it out there. Uh, you know, and obviously marketing helps and right time zones and all that sort of stuff. But on a very basic point, if if women are playing enough and they play enough cool games, 
people are just going to flick onto it, right? Like if you're watching, I'm trying to think what was on at the same time. I don't think there was another game on. But let's say there was, I don't know, like, you know, um, South Africa men were playing, you know, New Zealand men. Mm. And that's a boring game. Yeah. It just gives you another option to flick over, oh, right? Exactly. Like, I mean, yeah. you and I basically live 90% of our life flicking between cricket games to see what the more exciting <laughs> one is. <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, and, and like I said earlier, like you've been saying, Jared, it's about like putting them at, uh, you know, you know, putting these games at uh, at the bigger venues. We've seen that with the WBBL as well, right? Over, over time. Uh, yes, it's important. North Sydney Ovals become the the home of Australian women's cricket in in the sense. And um, and I remember speaking to Matthew Maud about this three three years ago when the WBBL kind of broke away from the BBL and got its own space. And that's what he said. He said, uh, the beauty of the North Sydney Oval is you feel so, it's so inclusive, right? You feel like you're there. You're part of the whole, you're, 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 you're part of the whole caravan of uh, the WBBL uh, as a fan. Uh, he was speaking about how his son was so into WBBL and, uh, you know, he was looking up to all these female cricketers, uh, you know, the whole, uh, obviously, at, at that age, gender is doesn't play as big a role, I guess, but uh, which is great. Like, and this is three years ago since the WBBL has just grown uh, in strength. Um, and, and coming back to uh, what you were saying about where they host these matches, prime time, uh, and that's been um, an issue for the BCCI. Often the women have played at a time and the Indian men have also been playing, uh, and they've always been criticized for that. But well, it, that's hard to be fair because the Indian men are always playing. Uh, that is also true. Some <laughs> somewhere, somewhere, Shikhar Dhawan is playing an ODI. <laughs> yeah, I want to look at Shikhar Dhawan's ODI numbers. You might have played four hundred games by now. I have no idea because every time you look, Shikhar Dhawan's playing a one day <laughs> somewhere. Uh, so to have the Indian men away and, and look, India and Australia, uh, or it's become quite the rivalry between yeah. uh, the women's team. Like India ended the. Uh, Australian women's world record ODI run last year in Australia, if you remember. The test match in, uh, on the Gold Coast, which I did cover under lights, could have gone either way, uh, right? I think India had uh, made a as much of an impact on that as, as the Aussies did. Smriti Mandana made that beautiful 100. So that was a closely contested series. And a few times now in World Cups, uh, they've had some tight games. India beaten Australia, Australia beaten India. They, of course, played that famous final just before COVID struck in 2020. Uh, mm. So it's a nicely developing rivalry between Australia and uh, India. So that helps as well. A lot of these Australian women's players are now uh, big names in India, uh, right? Like, uh, and not just, I'm not just talking about uh, the, the Perrys and the Healy. You're not just talking about Alyssa Healy for fighting with Borea on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or or going after some Indian journalist who said something about Mitchell Stark, maybe. I'm just guessing. Uh, but uh, I, I'm just kidding. But like even Alana King for that matter, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. and cricket gets consumed differently in India, right? Even if people are watching or whether they're watching it or not, they read a lot about cricket. So they know a lot about these players even if they haven't seen them in the flesh or even seen them a lot on TV. So I think that helps as well. And the DY Patel is the perfect venue to host a game like this. A, because of, uh, if you understand how Mumbai has developed, it's in a place called New Mumbai uh, or New Bombay. Uh, but there's been I, so much... I only know about the town and you know that. That is true, yeah. <laughs> so it's almost it's on on your way to Pune, as you well know. Uh, so it's uh, you you drive past the Diva Patel Stadium, and 
as always, I shall digress. I watched the D.Y. Patel Stadium come up, Jared, because all my friends went to the engineering college next door to it. Actually, it's owned by the same family, D.Y. Patel. And by, this is 20 years ago uh, when they started construction. And this is when I was in my, into my peak uh, heavy metal plus drug phase. So the number of nights I've spent on the, like, you know, just lying down on a car, smoking a joint and have, <laughs> seeing the stadium come up. I almost feel like, I've been part of this journey of Divya Patel coming into being, uh, but that was 20 years ago. I'm I'm a refor I'm reformed now, but um, it's 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 so beautifully located now, just off the highway, and I'm not surprised 45,000 people turned up to watch this game. It's uh, and Divya Patel doesn't get as many games as it should. Hey, it hosted the first ever IPL final, as you know, back in 2008. Mm. So, and the 2010 final as well. Uh, so, um, it, it, it's it's just happening. And for the longest time, in if uh, Indian women were playing in Mumbai, they always played at BKC, which is the least convenient ground to uh, get to. A, because uh, it's gated. Often fans are not allowed to get inside. And it's it's yeah, I mean it's it's like a village ground. It's almost like Wormsley, right? It's uh but within within Mumbai, like bang in the middle of the city. So it's great that they're playing at these big stadiums. The next three games will be at the CCI. Um and the way the Indian psyche works as well, Jared, is the forty-five thousand people who went there, right? Now it's about them, right? Everybody's talking about how big the crowd mm -hmm. was. Now a, a lot of people who didn't even go there will show up at the CCI. It's, it's, I mean, it, 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 India, India is a very faddish society. Look, I've lived there for 30 years of my life. I know how it is. And in a, and at times it's not all, uh, I mean, you can say that with a ne negative connotation, but in this case, I think it's a positive. Like a lot of people will now show up to show their support to women's cricket. Um, a, because they want to watch this and the product is so good, but B, also because they want to be part of this caravan, like I said earlier. And that's so important. Like get them you know, make it popular, make it cool to watch women's cricket as it should have been a long time ago and it'll just grow and it just works perfectly into that women's IPL that's going to start next year. Perfect. After this break, uh, we will chat about England, Pakistan. All right, welcome back. Uh, me and Barrett still here. So I think um, it's worth talking about England, Pakistan again, but just I just want to talk about one thing that I do find interesting. If you look at what Australia did in Pakistan and you look at what England is doing in Pakistan, there's probably two things. Uh, well, one thing that's very similar and one thing that's very different. The thing that's very similar, of course, is that Pakistan are playing shithouse, and we'll get to that in a moment. Yes. Uh, maybe shithouse is wrong. That, they did pretty well in this test at the end, yeah. but they're, they're not winning anyway. Yeah. They still haven't yeah. won a test in five tests against yeah, those two exactly. teams. But the second thing is that... Um, uh, that what England have done through this baseball, and we talked about it a little bit last week or the week before, is that they've actually won two tests by batting quicker. That first innings is quite interesting when you look back at this test. And I remember a lot of England fans, it was the first time I saw that sort of the baseball start to crack a little bit. Yeah. Right? And they were just like, oh my God, was it that did they lose seven wickets to the sweep shot or something? Yeah, yeah. Which I don't think is the most. I reckon there was a test I covered in or candy when there were even more sweeps with, uh, where England went out. So it's not like it's the first time they've ever decided just to sweep beforehand. But anyway, but because they did bat so quickly, they gave themselves enough time to win this game again. So I, I found that very, very interesting. Even if uh, at the moment 
you know, and we can get on to Pakistan in, in, in a second. But the one thing that you have to do to win in Pakistan is probably give yourself a little bit more time because of the yes. light and because of, of the pitches. Yeah. Oh, you're so right. I mean, uh, uh, when I was there earlier this year for the Australia tour, it was, you know, about playing that 15-day test that Pat Cummins and Andrew McDonald spoke about. And it took them in like you know they were they dragged it into the last session of the last test on the last day to win that test and that series and that's how you play cricket in pakistan i mean i remember t saying this on commentary many times during that tour uh, and even off the off off air to adam and jeff adam collins and jeff lemon that uh, the way test cricket is played out in pakistan and the way it used to be back in the day in india in the 90s as well is the game goes at a it kind of cruises along for the first three, three and a half days. And then it really catches speed. Like it goes from second gear to fifth gear very quickly without you noticing it. Uh, by late, late, by like, you know, maybe mid midday on day four and then straight into day five. And that's how it happened. I think Australia should have won in Karachi. They played it perfectly in at their own pace. You know, they weren't trying to win the test match in three days. They were they're ready to play... Uh, take it deep and they did a couple of catches maybe Usman Khawaja takes that catch of Mohamed Rizwan uh, Mitchell Swepson becomes a star in his first test and in, in Australia win in Karachi as well but I think the way Babar Azam and Mohamed Rizwan batted they deserve to save that game similar situation again in Lahore but this time Australia just and it took some Pat Cummins magic to turn things around on that final day but to go back to your point that's how you win test matches in Pakistan or so we thought and so what England have done is kind of accept that same principle of giving yourself time, but they've done it differently. Like rather mm -hmm. than make sure that everything just falls into place, like every, every like every declaration, every decision you make just works out perfectly for you. Because Australia were criticized for not declaring early, but they were always happier giving themselves the extra 70, 80 runs to play with just so that they have that you know that extra kind of cover to bowl Pakistan out and then still have enough of a lead to then give their bowlers a chance to you know, bowl Pakistan out in the last innings. But what England have been doing is going going the other way, of course, by just smashing the ball around this regard, playing basketball, um, and just naturally giving themselves more time, right? Like mm. by with the pace at which they've been scoring. Uh, but you're right. I mean, when Abrar Ahmed, what a debut that was as well. Like, and what a first wicket as well. That googly. Uh, and what a story um, overall. But like when England did go, it, it looked like they were going berserk, right? Like he, Zach Crawley gets out of that googly and then Ollie Pope comes and plays a reverse sweep and uh, mm. Jack Leach is trying to play a switch hit or what it looked like a switch hit is getting LBW. Uh, and all this is happening within the first two sessions on day one. So yeah, I mean, people would have questioned baseball, but I think pa that's where Pakistan had a chance to then pile on the runs in the first innings, which they did not do, and which, again, goes back to what we were talking about last week, that um, basketball's just not about, uh, you know, fast scoring and all that. It's really given the likes of uh, Jimmy Anderson uh, and Ollie Robinson the time to work out batters and bowl them out, right? Like, it's not... Okay, basketball might have set up the first test for England, but it was some hardcore old school test cricket that won it for them eventually on day five. But at the same time, what is interesting is, is that I think that 
you, I think you're right. And some of the bowling and, and even some of the treatment of their bowlers, I thought was quite interesting in the way that England went about it. But England did get bowled out in 50 overs. Yes. Right? So I, this is the thing I find a little bit, maybe not confusing, but this is where we don't know the full story. Had England batted normally? Yes. Do they bat for 70 overs, 75 mm. overs, but might actually have made 230, 220? Yeah. yeah. Right? And so the the whole thing's interesting. No, but you're right. The, the bowling, the fielding changes, I think it was, yeah, it must have been the first innings. Was it Jimmy got a wicket? Wait, just let me look. I've got the scorecard here somewhere. Mm. I had it before. I think Jimmy got a wicket. Yeah, Jimmy got Imam Al-Haq really early on. And I think yeah. he bowled two overs and they took him out of the attack. Now, I still think that was a mistake at a certain level, only because I, th I think if you're going to do it, they should have just switched him around a little bit or brought him back quite quick. But the thing is that they're making those sorts of decisive movements again. Yeah. And, and there really is, if nothing else, they are backing the decisions they make. And I remember when teams were, you know, do you remember when Steve Waugh had all the slips, right? So you went from, you went from Alan Border being quite defensive yeah. to Mark Taylor being quite defensive, but in a tactical way to Steve Waugh, not at all being tactical mm. and just going, I'm going to keep four slips in yeah. for as long as possible. And eventually you're going to nick to one of these slips, right? You would watch other teams try and copy Australia's methods. No one had the strength of character to just do that yes. and steve war is now remembered as a great captain okay i'm not tactically oh, i yeah. never yeah, yeah a bit bland right yeah but but when but the, his big thing was just like this is what i'm going to do and i'm going to stick with it until yeah. it, it works and most people just don't do that you, you know yeah to go back to something really random but just because i'm doing the video series on india you have a look at dinesh karthik like for a year England, India say we're going to play Dinesh Karthik as our as our um you know our finisher. We're going to play yeah. Dinesh Karthik as a finish. One one match he has to go in way too early. Another match he gets run out, and the other yeah. match he fails in the last over facing a spinner. And they're like, oh, actually, we don't believe in that theory anymore. <laughs> well, wait a minute, right? Yeah. And that's what most teams do. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, as someone who's been an analyst, you have these conversations over and over again, and and you say to them, look, I'm not being rude, but does that mean everything we said last week is now wrong? Yeah. And usually the team will say, yes, that's why we're changing everything. I'll be like, <laughs> I don't know if that's true. So I, that was one thing from the, the sort of the baseball and the new method of English cricket that yeah. I actually am really enjoying, which is we, are, we, we believe that we're doing the right thing and so we're going yes. to do it, which is not really what most teams do. They, they kind of react to what's happening rather than going, no, no. It, it's almost like England are playing – well, algorithm cricket's wrong because that's what Joe Root did. Mm. But it's almost like they're saying, we're going to put this in our favor. And even yeah. if it doesn't work, we believe that this is what's going to come out. Yeah. I mean, uh, to sum up what you're saying, they're just following through with what they're saying over and over again, right? Like um, when they won in Rawalpindi, even I was a little skeptical. I'll be honest. I was like, okay, let's see them do it. Uh, and follow through with it on a turning pitch. And I, I, this wasn't a raging turner, but like you know, it wasn't as flat as Rahul Pindi. The bowlers definitely had something to play with. Uh, and Abrar Ahmed was bowling beautifully. Uh, and they weren't picking him either. <laughs> like, you know, mm. they weren't picking him from the hand. Uh, but they still kept playing their shots. They kept following through. Uh, and, and just to go back to uh, Steve Waugh and, and, and captaincy, and even if, like, say... Uh, like you, Steve always to just throw the slips in. And like you said, he used to attack, attack, attack. Another Australian captain uh, who I thought, uh, you know, 
was way more uh, skilled as a captain or tactically so much more astute was Michael Clark. And I always have credited him for having made Nathan Lyons' career, who just now took his 450th wicket. I'm sure we'll talk about that test match later on in the show. Because he would give Mike, uh, Nathan Lyons or bring him in the 8th over, ninth over, even in Australia, often in the 11th over. But very, very rarely would he leave him to, uh, unless some this fast bowlers are running through the opposition, rarely would, him not, would he not give him a ball uh, before the 20th over. And he followed through with it. That's also positive captaincy, mm. right? I mean, and mm. also uh, sticking to something that you believe in. And, and that, 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 that is the definition of positive captaincy, especially in the long format. And my guess is with whether they knew it or not, and I think they knew it, it's that Nathan Lyon gets more bounce and gets more of his wickets through bounce, which is why he's better in the first innings and second innings, which is very rare. And so from that perspective, right, it's like, again, the easier thing to do is go, no, 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 we're going to use our quicks, we're going to use our quicks, we're going to use our quicks, and then later on. It's that kind of decisive kind of thinking that I I think at the moment England has – it's not that I, I think with Joe Root, you watch Joe Root as a player, and I've never done this video, but one day I'll get to it. Just he basically does play cricket as an algorithm. It's it's incredible yes. when you look at all of his different decisions. Captaincy, though, it's like that was the one bit that he like held himself mm. back from. Yes. Right? Where he couldn't quite fully commit to that. He knew, I think he even knew and he said what he should have done. Whereas Ben Stokes is like, no, great. This is the best thing. Well, we're just going to do this. And if it yeah. doesn't work, wow, we gave it uh, our exactly. best shot. Oh yeah, yeah, and I think it's a personality thing as well. But but Joe Root's an interesting one, Jared. Uh, and I was thinking about it the other day in this baseball context. Uh, and uh, I was speaking to I think I, I I was trying to pick. Oh no, I was telling Ian Bishop about this. I was like, I was I want I want to see how Joe Root's career goes from from this point on because you have someone who has scored a lot of runs in Test cricket and done really really well in Test cricket. Uh, and I'm talking very individually about Joe Root, mm. the batter, and doing it a certain way, right? Now, clearly, he seems to have bought into baseball, and he is a team player. We have always known that. Uh, but how does he start looking at his batting? I mean, his numbers could go either way, right? Like he he could his average could drop, right? He and maybe he's the kind of guy, and he's always come across as the kind of guy who wouldn't mind if England keep winning, um, or does he? Uh, kind of become the outlier where Joe Root is allowed to do what Joe Root wants to do and everybody else just like, you know, plays, plays, plays basketball. Because I tried thinking of it um, another, the other way around. If tomorrow suddenly Pat Cummins just decide, right, like they, we go into the ashes and they decide, you know what, the only way to, they let's say Australia lose the first test and they're like, the only way to counter this is we have to play uh, an aggressive form of cricket. How does he convince Steve Smith to do that? Or even Manas Labushain to do that, right? Like, will Steve Smith buy into it immediately? Or will he say, but no, but that... Because someone like Steve Smith, uh, in particular, because he's so... Why he's wired in a way where everything has to fall perfectly with his batting, hands That's and legs. That's the difference, though. Because you're right up to a certain extent, but what you're forgetting is that Joe Root was the first person ever to score over a runner ball while averaging over 50 in the middle of one-day games. In one-day cricket, that's true. So he has already done this once and wanted to do it in T20 cricket in a way that we know that Smith... Yes. Smith almost fights everything Cricket Australia has tried to get it to do with T20 cricket. So I do think there's a difference there. I, I was with you, but the 
my memory, I haven't looked at his strike rate, but I think he has a pretty good strike rate in test cricket anyway, Joe Root. But when I saw him play the reverse scoop, whatever it was, at, I want to say Headingley, but I can't remember where, yeah. whatever ground I was at. Yeah. Oh, oh this is like the one against, uh, in the test match against India, right? Was it India? Yeah, yeah, it was in New Zealand. I can't remember. It was that summer, anyway. Yeah, yeah, last yeah, summer, yeah. obviously. Whichever test match I was at where he played <laughs> it. But when you see that, you do realize that he has bought in in a way that I think perhaps others wouldn't have. Um, That's true. Interestingly enough, that but as I said, he, he he's bought into it in a way with his batting that I don't think he might have done with his captaincy just because yeah, I think he no thinks chance. about those things differently. But, the, but anyway, um, just very quickly, Pakistan, I had them, I had India and Pakistan as the two teams most likely to make the uh, World Test Championship uh, final. Mm. Um, I think Sri Lanka had the easiest draw, but I had, I figured that Sri Lanka wouldn't be able to win enough to get there. They're not that yeah. far away, Sri Lanka, actually, no, by the way. Yeah. But but um, uh, we'll have to see. Pakistan had the second easiest draw, and then I think India were the best team with a pretty favourable draw, whereas some of the other teams that were good didn't just didn't have that kind of draw. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, Pakistan now have won four of their last 11 games. Uh, if you look at their last seven, they're now won one of their last seven. You look at them on paper. I was looking at them. When they were chasing this big score against England, I was like, oh, there are a chance that yeah. this pitch isn't doing that much. But then I remember what their batting lineup was, and I was like, they got Nawaz and they got um, Ash. Was it Nawaz at six and Ashraf at seven? Rizwan at five? I mean, they swapped. I think Ashraf came at six in this in the second innings, and then uh, they had Aga Salman and then Nawaz at eight, if I'm not mistaken, in this in, in the second innings. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was looking at those that batting order, yeah, order. Yeah. and and so so Aga Salman. I'm just I'm looking up his first class average here. So he averages just over f just under forty in first class cricket. So he's not a dud. And neither is no. Nawaz. No. But I do get the feeling that they are guys who have probably made some good runs in first-class cricket batting further down. Yeah. I call this the Ryan McLaren um, effect, <laughs> where you look at someone and go, oh, he's got a good batting average. And then you're like, yeah, but look where he bats in first-class cricket. He's not batting at four or five. Um, not having a go at them. But when I looked at that batting lineup, I, they actually did well because they didn't get that far away from winning yeah, in the yeah. end. But I did look at that batting lineup and I was like... They're making a lot of to get extra bowling in, which I, I guess in Pakistan that you need. Um, they're making a lot of uh, risks with their batting for what is a batting lineup that's in, in some ways very similar to the T20 and their one-day batting lineup, which is you kind of want the top four, or in this case the top five, to make about 350, break the bowlers, and then hope that the rest of the players could chip in. I can't remember how long they've been doing that. But it does feel to me that even if you have short-term success over a long period of time, if you have guys who aren't, if you don't have a really strong top seven in test cricket with the fact that, you know, with the quality of bowlers that is currently around, I just don't think you're going to be able to win consistently. I'm not saying you won't be able to win. I'm not saying yeah, you won't be able to do true. it for certain things. But I wonder if that's why Pakistan have fallen back a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think so. Look, you look at uh, the batting lineup. I'm a huge fan of Abdullah Shafiq, like everybody else is uh, these days. Well, I mean, such a pretty batter to watch and he's got every gear you need in a in a modern day batter right he can play shots he can bat time like we saw against australia and even here in this test match um imam can't stop scoring runs in home conditions they struggled overseas more or less but um he's very consistent uh, at home then you have barber 
then you have Mohammed Rizwan. Uh, and I think Saud Shakil looks like I, I remember seeing him in during practice sessions while while Australia were there, and he looks like a proper. Almost a better player than Fawad Alam, like who had come back and scored those runs, and then Mitchell Stark really sorted him out in two Test matches, and that was pretty much, uh, you know, that was it for Fawad Alam. Uh, but then, yeah, I mean, their makeup of the team, and also because their bowling lineup never stays settled, right? Like that's another big problem. I think Pakistan, if you look at their their record, Jared, I'm pretty sure Pakistan have done. Most uh, uh, they've been at their consistent best in Test cricket when they've had one proper spinner who gives them wickets very very regularly. Whether it's when Yasir Shah was playing or before that Saeed Ajmal uh, or Saklain Mushtaq or, or or even when Danish Kaneria would have those years where he would take a lot of wickets. I think the problem for them has been that they've just struggled to find that spinner. Like when we went there uh, earlier this year, it was. Uh, Noman Ali and Sajid Khan, who at that point looked like very, they were settled. They were the test spinning duo. Then they are gone and now we have a little bit of Nawaz and this new kid who did take a lot of wickets. I mean, hopefully they can build their bowling lineup around him. Because everybody gets excited about Pakistan's fast bowlers all the time. Naseem Shah or like go back in time, Mohammad Amir and all these guys. But how often do they play more than two series on the trot. Well, that's and the other problem with Pakistan is what well, uh, they they throw like you know they throw these bowlers in. They take a bunch of wickets straight away, yeah. and they fail for a couple of tests, and they disappear. And that's and, it. Yeah, and they don't have those sort of and and that's what I'm talking. That's kind of what I think the problem with the batting lineup is. If they had Farwood coming in at number six and Rizwan at number seven, right, and they got got rid of this all rounder stuff. They were yeah. just like, okay, here are our seven best batters. Yes, exactly. And here are our four best bowlers. They then have the ability to kind of win games in either direction. Yes. Right? Whereas at the moment, it's like every, all the pressure's on your top order and then you've got a bunch of guys, who you've, whoever the most hyped young bowler is suddenly mm. coming in or or then they'll pick like a 28 or 29-year-old sort of middle-of-the-road bowler, yeah. you know, and, and you – I'm not saying these guys are talented because they're clearly taking wickets domestically. And then the third problem when it comes to home cricket is they pick these bowlers who do really well on these helpful first-class wickets. Right? <laughs> exactly. And then they play in a test match where that's the exact wrong kind of bowler. They're basically, they're almost doing the inverse of what New Zealand cricket did, which is, you know, when New Zealand cricket went out of its way to make sure that, um, uh, that, that they were preparing for test cricket. It's almost like Pakistan's, going out of its way not to prepare for test cricket. <laughs> yeah, look, there are always these clips of, I don't know why it's always these Pakistani bowlers whose clips keep doing the rounds in first-class cricket, right? Even even Muhammad Ali, who, uh, uh, you know, done okay in the series, I guess, but uh, there were those clips of him, like, knocking stumps out and all of that. But then you see the pitches that those games are played on and the pitches we get into. There's nothing, nothing in common. It's like they're playing in another country altogether. So uh, that's the basis of uh, their selection as well. But I go back to that, Jared. If Pakistan can find a spinner, and that's the problem, right? They're not finding enough bowlers who take wickets regularly or they don't have the patience to stick with them. I thought Sajid Khan made a great start to his test career. He showed a lot of heart against Australia, but then dumped, gone. It's all over. Australia beat you, so you're gone. Uh, Which has been Pakistan's selection for a long... I mean, in my living memory, that's all 
always been the case. But if they find like a good spinner who they can build the attack around, then it doesn't matter who the fast bowlers are. Like you think about Yasir Shah when he was winning matches for them or Saeed Ajmal. Often you look at, they rarely played with the same bowling attack very often. You know, we look at Saeed Ajmal, there were all these guys who played alongside him, right? Asif and Umar Gul and Chima and Irfan and Sohel Khan and all these guys. And similarly with um, Yasir Shah as well. Mohammad Abbas had that one good series, but then Amir came back. And it's, but it, they won their matches more often than not, right? The spinners. The occasional seamer would come and take seven fur or something. But then it was always, then you can, you can do away with, at least one of these all-rounders and then pick a proper proper number six. I think that's the problem. They've not had a proper number six for a while, like you said. Yeah. No, no, no. I agree. I agree. I think um, I, I like your idea of spinners, but I don't mind if also they just decide on someone who's an all-format bowler mm. uh, who yeah, can play true. around the world. And even if they say that guy's going to average 31 or 32, but he's then going to get experience bowling in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and South Africa and England and everywhere else. Just feels like their bowlers are constantly learning and ha and then they're learning domestically on one pitch and, and internationally <laughs> another. Uh, we'll have a break and then we'll quickly go to the West Indies, England. Uh, sorry, West Indies, Australia. There's too, too much cricket. Uh, West <laughs> Indies, Australia, men's test match, which was played uh, wherever you are, I think. Uh, you're, you're listening to Uncovered with Jared Kimber and Barrett Sundarason. All right. So I said in the previous episode, I think, that West Indies was, um, their batting overperformed uh, in Western Australia. And uh, it certainly didn't in the second test. No. It did not. I mean, they wanted to play 100 innings per innings. Or 100, 100 overs per 100 overs per innings, sorry. They, if innings. they had 100 batters, they might not have made 100 <laughs> They runs. would still not like, yeah, honestly, yeah, especially in that second innings where they did throw in the towel. But yeah, I mean, they, they wanted to, Craig Brathwaite was very uh, clear. He wanted his team to bat 100 overs in each innings, which they kind of did in Perth. Like you said, they did overperform. They did surprise a lot of people. Uh, but here, I think both innings put together... Uh, 110 overs is what they batted, uh, or maybe just around that that mark. Uh, yeah, I mean they were. It was the, if you look at it from an Australian perspective, the perfect. I mean, this is the blueprint for all Australian wins in pink ball cricket, right? Win the toss, bat first, make a big first inning score, declare just before um, uh, the sun setting on day two, take a lot of wickets, come back, polish off the first innings, come back, bat for a while, declare again. Like, it, it is perfect and finish the game off on the fourth day. I mean, the Indian game was an outlier where India dominated that game and then 36 all out happened or mm. whatever, 36 for nine happened. It's, it's also worth just saying that Mitchell Stark is so good in pink ball matches yeah. that, that he, he almost, it almost doesn't matter how Australia play. I know the India game is actually, as you said, a bit of an outlier, but in general, it's just like, yeah. Uh, there was going to be one time in that game that the West Indians were going to have to go up against Mitchell Sark. And it, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it uh, also helped them. In a way, you know, I think it uh, also made life more difficult for the West Indians. The fact that Cummins and Hazelwood didn't play, right? Then you have Scott Boland and Michael Nisa, who, are, who just naturally bowl the kind of lengths you need to bowl with the pink ball. Right? The Mitchell Stark length, like slightly up. And they're always at you. A... For a Sheffield Shield uh, Nuffy, if I can call myself that. And, uh, and I was so happy to see Scott Boland and Michael Nisa play together. I've said this in a few places, but they have been the yardstick. You know, mm. you when you score runs against these two, 
or uh, there are others Jackson Bird Chad Sayers when he was playing uh, even a Chris Tremaine uh, if you score saying, runs yeah. against them in shield cricket you know you're good like you know whatever stage of your batting career you are at uh, and, and that's what they're they're relentless I'm not saying Cummins and Hazelwood aren't relentless but they're almost like even more highly skilled so they might try a few other things but Boland and Nisa are not going to move away from that spot so it's really up to you can you survive or not and that's what made life even more difficult for um, for the West Indians and, and the injuries didn't help and once you saw after the first two overs of the game Jared when Alzari Joseph was bowling early 130s and Jason Holder was bowling early 120s the first two overs of the game with the pink ball you knew it was all over. Like, you just knew what was going to come. Like, you know, even though Devin Thomas, of all people, gave them a sniff, three for 130, you thought, really? I, I really, you know, when Steve Smith was out for the first time ever, caught and bowled by a seamer in Test Cricket, Jason Holder, just pretty much like a cross-seam ball, Damon Fleming said, was full ball that he just hit it straight back. Uh, you, you maybe for a second thought, shit, could West Indies have an opening here? But no, they, they never were. I mean, they, they were... Then they went to Alzari Joseph for two overs and then Rostin Chase and Craig Brathwaite came on for the next 40 minutes and it was all over. That was the end of the game, really. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, their batting was just not good enough. Like, they're not up to standard against this level of bowling. They don't face this level of bowling in their first-class cricket, you know. And this was a massive, massive step up. Uh, again, and it's almost like this, right? They were the young batters in Shield cricket who were up against the yardstick yeah. in Boland and Nisa. And honestly, they just weren't good enough. It was, uh, it was sad the way it ended uh, after some promising signs in the first test, uh, where you know, not just the seventy-seven all out, some of the dismissals as well. Alzari Joseph, who uh, you know, I know he's it's his bowling that people are getting excited about, but you wanted, I expected him to show some fight in that second innings, right, with the bat, like show some grit, which he can do. But when he came and swung across the line, it was clean bowl. Because it was him. If it was anyone else, if it was Marquino Mendley after being injured or Anderson Phillip, who, uh, yeah, I don't know how many test matches he's going to play, it wouldn't have made the same impact. When Alzari Joseph, who literally West Indians are banking on to, you know, take this test team to the next stage or to the next level, to him get, to see him get out like that was, was sad. I know a, a lot of people have argued that, oh, a loss to Australia should not be counted as the uh, sign that the West Indian team are struggling. Look at just what they did earlier in the year. They won against England and Bangladesh. But it's not the the fact that they lost. It's mm. just how they lost. And uh, the incentive, Jared, I mean, I think I said this last week as well. Just speaking to Roddy Estwick, or maybe I didn't. Uh, speaking to Roddy Estwick here in Adelaide before this test, uh, he pulled me aside and he said, uh, oh, we were speaking about what, you know, what, needs to happen for this West Indies team to start doing, getting some more results. And he was like, but, you know, we are slated to play 18 test matches in the next five years in our FTP. So if you are Tej Narayan Chandrapal, if Roddy Estwick saying 18 tests must be 18 tests, I, I, unless he's got the number Roddy wrong. Estwick is never wrong. That's I start all conversations from that Absolutely, spot. yeah, exactly. He, he had predicted, I won't get into the details, but I bumped into him before the 2019 World Cup, or before the first game of the 2019 World Cup, I think in Nottingham. Uh, and we were speaking about Jofra Archer. At this point, Jofra Archer had not played a World Cup game. Uh, so this must have been before the opening game. 
and he predicted jofra archer's career and he's known jofra archer since jofra mm. archer started playing cricket as you know so he predicted his england career and so far I, like i said i won't reveal what he said it's gone exactly how he predicted so we'll see how it um, how he comes back from where he is but rodi aswick said if they have just 18 tests so if you are tej narayan chandapol everybody's excited about him yeah he did bat well he showed fight he showed some courage even though uh, <laughs> like ian bishop said uh, ian bishop got a call from shiv narayan chandapol the morning after he became a happy hooker and he started hooking at everything the second evening and apparently shiv narayan chandapol asked ian bishop and i can say this because he said this on air uh, like uh, bro are you still in australia and ian bishop was like yeah so like, what the hell is brandon doing can you have a word with him why is he hooking at everything like you know when west indies are looking to bat mm. time and trying to take this deep uh, but Uh, so he's played two test matches now and everybody on uh, on commentary everywhere saying oh he could be a long term opener for west indies but what is long term because if he's going to play 18 tests between now and like you know the time he turns 31 he's 26 now so at 31 tej narayan chandapol even if he averages 50 even if he averages 60 with the bat say he would have just played 20 test matches right like what's the motivation like what's he going to get out of that unless he's trying to get a county deal Right. Yes. It doesn't actually. It doesn't make that much sense. So I mean, me and Mash have talked about this on you know the West Indies on ninety nine, uh, yeah, point nine four podcast before, which is they actually have a decent test team. It's not. They do. It's not a bad test team at all. It, I I didn't think it was going to transfer to Australian conditions, not partly all, because yeah. I think in Australian conditions, unless you get a very very flat SCG pitch. I think you need to be able to score at a decent rate just to keep the That's pressure the back on yeah. the bowlers exactly. a little bit. It's not like Pakistan where, you know, you know, India and Pakistan when they have flat pitches, you can just kind of bat time. That doesn't yeah. that, in Australia you have to put a little bit of pressure back on. So I I thought that was always going to be their problem. And well, I like their bowling. I don't think it's as strong as it was a couple of years ago. You know, maybe a peak Shannon Gabriel and if um Yeah. you know, if, if someone like Obed or um uh you know, um O'Shane had become a test bowler, they might have had that the, yeah. the quality and variety they would need for someone like Australia. But I this is exactly what I expected. The other thing that I found really interesting though about all this was every time West Indies play bad in a new location that they haven't been in for a while, you start to hear all the same old zombie myths. So it's like straight away people like I was I was copied in on one um a Twitter account uh, a, t- a Twitter conversation about you know basketball Are ruining, you know, and it's just like well, we've oh, done. Oh no, no, no! We've done the research. Oh. Basketball did not ruin cricket in the West Basketball Indies. Basketball has not had any impact on West Indian cricket. Oh, that's like it's, the worst. It's argument. the worst. Yeah. And then the other one is, and I'll be interested to see what you think about this. But the other one is, oh, um, you know, they back in the old days playing for the West Indies meant more, so they tried harder. And I was like, go back and have a look at all those old teams, and have yeah, a look exactly. at have a look at their best eight batters. Yeah, guys up like Basil Shotgun Williams who would be probably the second best bat in this team who oh, yeah. wasn't even that close to regular West Indies uh test matches. They had they had players who were averaging 40, 45, 50 who weren't even in in you know and this is all first class cricket weren't even in the frame to play for the West Indies yeah, if they exactly. had a guy now who could average 30 for three straight years of first class cricket he's going to play a test Right, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, someone like Kevin Hodge, who I love, Kevin Hodge. Uh, you know, I know him, and you know, he, he's a great guy and a very smart cricketer. He's probably going to end up with some kind of a West Indies career by the end of this. I think it was just the 
did he have the highest average in or the second highest average in the uh, Super 50 competition, right? But I haven't looked at his strike rate. It was probably a mm. strike rate of about 45, right? <laughs> he's a little bloke. He's clever. He moves the ball around. Yeah. They don't have players. This whole idea that people aren't playing for the badge, it also completely ignores the fact that Lyric Constantine played for um, West Indies so he could get a club deal in, in England. Garfield Sobers once famously said he wasn't going to play for the West Indies to play club cricket. The yeah. Packer the Rebel and all that. They've all, it's always been the same problem. The biggest problem now is that their players aren't getting the ability. When you talk about Chandra Paul not having the ability to play a lot of tests in the next five years, that's a shame. The other shame is, unless he does average 50 in test match cricket. Yeah, he won't last. Like, yeah. yeah, he's not going to last and he's not going to get county cricket to be, able to, to be able to play in anything else. And now all the best players end up in the franchise system. None of them play any sort of level of, of, of first-class cricket. And so more likely now, and you would know this, most of those American guys are more likely to go off and play a T20 tournament in America, which is some, like, office league in Seattle or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, absolutely. Hey, you still have to make a living, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, what is this, like, it's this fanciful thinking to, like, you know, rallying around the West Indies when, like, you know, you're not making a decent income. Like, if, if you're only going to play 18 tests, let's say if that is the fact, or what, how much, and it's not that the West Indian cricketers get paid the same amount to play a test match as Australians or English, uh, the Englishmen or, or, or the Indians. But even if they were, it, it, that's not enough. Like over a five-year period, if you're just a, a test specialist. Uh, and, and and look, we have to be brutally honest here. You can look at this test team in two ways. Like how many of the, or how many members of this 15, 16 member squad that were here actually are good enough or have the white ball skills to play other formats, right? Like uh, Kyle Mayers, maybe, yeah. I mean, he's whatever i mean he didn't have a great world cup but he's mm. supposed to be that guy um jason holder we've spoken about a lot in the past like joseph. you know he he's got an alzari joseph for sure um, roston no i mean look i mean yeah roston like had one cpl semi cpl mm -hmm. good cpl he's coming but will he be picked by maybe a t10 tournament somewhere one of those leagues but not any of the no. even the cpl standard leagues nobody's going to pick him um, I mean, forget about Craig Brathwaite. Uh, you look at like Shama Brooks. Okay, he had another one CPL, but no, oh, no. I mean, it's a one off. No. Is he going to have a long run in the CPL to start mm. with? No. Jermaine Blackwood, same story. Can't get in the CPL, Blackwood for years. I mean, yeah. Exactly. Joshua De Silva, I don't think he's CPL or he's, uh, I mean, he's not going to get, uh, maybe he'll play CPL regularly, but he's not going to make a splash Beyond in T20 that. cricket yeah. at the. So, I mean, the fact is, like, when you see this test team, they're basically a bunch of cricketers who are good in this format, I guess, but also guys who are not, who don't have the white ball skills to make us, or yet, I mean, they don't have, not at this point. Those who do have left Shea Hope. I mean, they tried giving him a test career. Like, you can look at it in many ways and say, oh, it didn't work out for him, but, you know, he's... He's not the best T20 talent going around, but you know he's still got the white ball skills to get a get a gig somewhere, right? He's got enough. He scores enough runs in 50 over cricket to get a gig somewhere, um, and so many others. We don't even have to get into the Purans, and I still don't get the Nicholas Puran argument because he never played first class cricket. I mean, he never wanted to. So this whole thing of no, no, he's a big loss to test cricket is is. It's ridiculous. He, like, did, you know. he did. It's not that he never wanted to, to be fair. He had the fight with Trinidad. I mean, 
yeah. He did. Yeah. I mean, he did. But he could have like, come yeah. back and, and, and eventually he could have come back and played a lot more first-class cricket That's as well. what I mean. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. But, like, he, you he know, by play, then... He played a couple of... He played a couple against West Indies A, didn't he, to show that he was it, interested, yeah. But, he did. Like, but, yeah. No, it, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, we're, it's interesting now. We're a long way away from where we were when, you know, Karen Pollard actually played first-class cricket, Andre Russell. Yes. When I first heard about Andre Russell, it wasn't watching him play. It was a scorecard. He came over to play, I can't remember if he was playing against India A or England A, but it was in England. And he made, I think he made 70 or 80 off 50 or 60 balls and then took a six-fer. I think that's right. Mm. It was something like that. And um, I went down to watch him play against India A a couple of weeks later. He was playing at Whitgift, the, the school where half the Surrey team come from. And... Um, I was just watching him going, what the? Like, and so I just don't think now, and, and I'll tell you what, a couple of years later, I reckon three or four years later, I saw Ruckin Cornwall, Odeon Smith, um, and a couple of the others playing against India A at uh, Beckenham as well. I don't know mm. why all these games are in South London, but for, no. luckily for me, they are. Um, and so uh, again, uh, those players, I wonder if the next generation will even see come, those sorts of plays even coming through first class, uh, you know, cricket and A cricket. That's the bigger problem because what I think what you're saying um, in one way is that, you know, if if you take away sort of Chander, Paul and Brathwaite, who realistically I think are test quality players or at least yeah. fairly close, there's a lot of other guys who are there because they're there. Yes, right. Exactly. This isn't exactly. a team of I don't know Vernon Philanders and Chris Rogers, right? They, yeah, you, they're no, not no, no. test we'll specialists. Get... They're just not no. good at the other formats, which is a completely exactly. different argument, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely right. That's what I mean. That is the point. It's not that these are guys who've been like breaking the door down for so long that the West Indian selectors have no option but to pick them. I mean, Tej Narayan Chandrapal wasn't even part of the Guyanese side, right? Like uh, an injury happens and he has one good season. And uh, makes for 400s or 300s this year and can come through the ranks, like, you know, kind of. Uh, and then the John Campbell episode happens. So that's how Tej Narayan Chandrapal comes in. It's not that he's had eight, four spectacular seasons and they had no option but to pick him. And, and that's the thing. And also, I think they, they did well in Perth. Uh, if you think about it, uh, mm -hmm. because they were knocked out early in the T20 World Cup. And I know the test team is separate to the T20 team. Maybe a couple of guys who got mixed. I think Rostin Chase, Jason Holder and Brooks. Are the, oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe they're Alzari Joseph. Joseph yeah. But also, like we saw with India two years ago, uh, in different circumstances, but when you give a team... Uh, a month to acclimatize to any condition, obviously they'll play better, right? I mean, that's the the modern landscape of world cricket doesn't allow it. Like Australia will now go and play four test matches in India without a without a tour game, right? Like whereas South Africa have had a tour game. But the fact that the, these West Indian players had, the test players had, uh, they were flown in uh, early. They had one month to train with under Phil Simmons and the full coaching staff. Uh, two proper warm-up games uh, or pro proper first-class practice games, you saw that come through. Like, you know, even with the Tej Narayan Chandar Paul and even a Craig Brathwaite, right? Like, to, uh, you kind of get used to the pitches. Obviously, higher level of bowling with uh, Cummins and Hazelwood and uh, Stark and Lyon, but still, that has an impact. Uh, you know, in, again, if you leave 36 all out aside, when India came here, one of the main reasons their players started 
doing better and better as the tour progressed was they'd spent so much time i mean rahane and pujara had spent a month batting on these pitches and their fast bowlers had spent a month landing on these hard surfaces which is mm. which is which has a huge impact right like that's one of the um things i have mentioned in my book which i am copy editing at the moment so it should be out in march so that's good uh, just in time so, for christmas you know so uh, that's the thing so it's uh, I, there are a lot of factors and, and you know i i think somewhere we need to find a middle ground you can't just say that oh no you cannot diss this west indian team uh because they lost to australia that's not it like you can't then go back to the same like you said bus that look at reasons why they have been lost and all that and also at some point we need to start looking back right like in what other facet of life do we kind of yearn for something that happened 40 years ago or like you know because in 3 years time jared it'll be the 30 year anniversary of uh, australia beating the west indies like i think i might be giving someone a documentary idea here so 30 years since that dominant run ended of course they didn't they weren't this bad in 95 but that's where the decline sort of had already set in but that was officially that was the start of the west indian decline right so that's 30 years and now that's so for a 30 year period they have not been very good and they were very very good for 15 years or oh, let's say 20 years right so that's a, so the the time they've not been good is much longer than the time they were very very good so we need to stop kind of looking back at like you know every time you see alzari joseph you don't need to think of imagine him being the next michael holding or even him being the next courtney walsh or whatever i mean i can't see how they're ever going to be that team again right and i don't mean that in a like even no. close the success for them was that period where they won a test must have been in the UAE against Pakistan they yeah. won a home series they've won that's success for the west indies cricket now if you, if they can over a two year period have a 50 win percentage by beating the teams that are worse than them holding their own against the teams roughly the same and occasionally getting rolled by australia that's actually massive success for for modern um, cricket and i think You're right. This whole thing and this this almost goes back forget the neutrals like us. Well, you're not really neutral, but um <laughs> forget the non uh, forget the non-West Indians. I still yeah. think this is a problem within West Indian cricket of like yes. we're going to find the person you're not. But but there are actual successes. A, I still uh, think the West Indian fans skipped over the fact they were so good in T20s, right? Because they yeah, they weren't they as did. good in the other formats. But B, There have been times where I've looked at this team and just been like, yeah, it's got a good bowling attack. It can you know, put things together and Brathwaite can do this and they don't seem to be taking any joys in the games that they are doing well in. The only time yes. that West Indian fans seem excited anymore is when they beat England and England have a weirdly bad record against West Indies. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's it's almost like a voodoo for England in, in the Caribbean, right? Like so they you you're right. And this is what Jason Holder touched upon as well in in that interview he gave me before the series began is that uh yeah i mean it, uh, success and failure for every team has to be it has to be relative right you can't you can't say that look at this team doing what they've done and compare it to any other era right like because that's what west indian teams have been doing for a while now i mean when was the last time they were you know semi competitive so that's why people got excited uh, with what they did in in perth they batted mm. for nearly 200 overs if uh, actually over 200 overs in a test match against a a prop uh, an australian attack 
who had gone in with over 1000 wickets to their name that's a huge success right like nobody was expecting them to beat australia so yeah i mean while the adelaide oval i mean the adelaide defeat is disappointing i think it's high time people just put everything into context with west indies cricket and a stop romanticizing about it it really gets my nerve when people keep romanticizing about it and this is something i was telling ian bishop really every day of this too i was like if world cricket like wants uh, a stop either you stop romanticizing about the fact that oh world cricket needs a great west indian team or you start doing something about it right 18 test matches is not good enough right whatever reason if you want west indies team to be competitive again uh, against all comers then you have to give them more test matches right tej narayan chandrapal should have 40 test matches not 20 test matches in 5 years time couldn't have said it better myself like you were my puppet and i stuck my hand up your bum uh, i'll talk to you again next week Thanks for listening to 99.94 Network. Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favourite team at 99.94 where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresan is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orajoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.